2022 was a year like few others in Kansas politics. Journalists at the Kansas Reflector began by covering a breakneck legislative session. Towards the end of the year, we followed a bitter midterm election contest. And in the middle of it all, August, we saw a landmark vote on abortion rights. My name is Clay Wirestone, and I'm the Reflector's opinion editor. To help make sense of these stories and others that defined a remarkable year, I'm joined by the Reflector's editor-in-chief, Sherman Smith, senior reporter Tim Carpenter, and reporter Rachel Mepro. Welcome to you all. Thanks, Clay. So let's start with that abortion vote uh, on August 2nd. Uh, Sherman, this was a very, very big deal to understate it. Yeah, it was it was a political earthquake and one that was set in motion by the U.S. Supreme Court decision weeks before, you know, the the Kansas abortion amendment uh, was, you know, something that had been in the works for several years. Legislature had put this on the, the ballot a year and a half in advance. Nobody really uh, you know, foresaw, I guess, that the U.S. Supreme Court would, would drop this decision right before the Kansas vote that, that, take, that would take away the right to terminate a pregnancy. And so that put a lot of attention on Kansas. And, you know, a lot of people now say they saw the vote coming, but in real time, it was seen as a toss-up vote and the, the basically 60-40 landslide rejecting this abortion amendment was shocking. Uh, and it, you know, kind of reset the way some of the, the elections unfolded later in the year. And I think, honestly, we're still kind of coming to terms with that vote and what it means in Kansas. We, we are. I think it's people are a little hesitant and, and rightfully so to, to try to, to draw a lot of meaning from this. Like, does this mean everybody wants uh, a lot of access to abortion or are they just unhappy with this particular amendment? You know, the supporters for this amendment drew it up in confusing language, placed it on a, a particular ballot where they thought they would have a, an extraordinary advantage. It was like all the everything was stacked in their favor. And I think voters didn't like that. I think they didn't like the idea that the legislature would have unlimited power to ban abortion under any circumstance without exception. Uh, so we know that voters don't want that, but we don't know what they do want. You know, would they support a for instance, a 15-week ban? Would they support other restrictions? I think if there had been a constitutional amendment that said, we're going to allow abortion, but we're going to cement every restriction that's currently in place, maybe Kansas voters would have adopted that. So candidates on the trail, uh, you know, or maybe Democrats especially, were a little reluctant to go out and say, you know, I really, really support all of these abortion rights because they, they weren't really certain about where voters stand. Could I say something? I wanted to just pitch in there. This yes, is Tim. Tim. So when this amendment was drafted by the Kansans for Life and the legislators who were fervently against abortion, they were so confident that they could get this passed that they didn't include the typical language you see in abortion law, which is to say there's an exception to abortion limits to save the life of the mother or in cases of rape or incest. They didn't put that in there because they thought this amendment would pass and they would just be one step closer to not allowing abortion at all in Kansas. But what happened, there was a very organized and well-funded campaign against the amendment. Uh, they, I think they were effective in their marketing and commercials and advertising. And in the end, by a margin of 172,000 votes, the Kansans spoke and said, we want abortion rights. And we don't like this amendment. 
And I would agree, Sherman, that the legislators and the anti-abortion crowd are still on their back heels uh, trying to figure out where to go next. If you believe in the voters decide things, if you want to lean in to what voters say, then they'll stand pat about where they're at right now in terms of abortion instead of coming back in the 2023 legislative session and immediately kick off uh, a program of further restricting abortion, I would think. You would think, but we're seeing now some some legal battles over some of the restrictions that currently exist. And as some of those start to get knocked down, I think you'll see more more enthusiasm in the legislature to to fight back to to come up with new restrictions or you know there's there's nothing that says they can't come up with another constitutional amendment uh one of the issues with with this one was you know Kansans for life the other supporters were dishonest about what they were trying to do they they insisted this wasn't about banning abortion even though that's the exact power they were giving the legislature one of the things that we were able to do was report uh, a, a story I, I reported a few weeks before the vote of uh, a regional director for Kansans for Life out in western Kansas or central Kansas talking about how as soon as this amendment passes, that's exactly what we're going to do. She knew the the exact bill number, what was in that bill, and it was a total ban without exception for abortion. And so that is ultimately the goal. Um, whether Whether there's a path to get there, I think, it is yet to be seen. Well, and I just found it fascinating in watching the campaign that the anti-abortion forces never quite had an answer for folks who said, this is what you're trying to do. This is what you, you want to do. They would say things along the lines of, oh, that's ridiculous, but then not answer follow-up questions. Right. Um, it, it, it seems as though after spending all of this effort writing the amendment and getting it onto the ballot for the, the primary, they had not actually gone through like the third, fourth, fifth steps and figuring out how to how to sell it if there was an opposition method message. I mean, rather than answer questions, they had a series of background calls where they wanted to tell you what you should report, but you weren't allowed to quote them, uh, which I thought was very problematic. And, you know, at some point I just stopped dialing in because there wasn't any point to it. After the election, of course, they blamed the media for the failure of this. Right. And and I, I just feel ultimately you have a 60, 40, you know, 60 percent, 40 percent rejection of the bill. I think any one any one cause, any one um, event, you can maybe attribute a few of those percentage points to. But to have such an overwhelming rejection, you know, Tim, I really agree. The voters of Kansas were saying we're not having it. Right. Um, so, okay, moving on to another giant story from the year, Tim, you, uh, reported a story about Johnson County Sheriff Calvin Hayden. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Johnson County Sheriff Hayden, a 2020 election denier, I should point out, uh, convened a meeting with like-minded folks at the sheriff's department uh, the, earlier this year in which he offered some of the following. The sheriff said he would take up arms to thwart the IRS from flooding the county with investigators. He also said he had the authority to actually toss those IRS agents out of his county, his county. Hayden said he wanted to arrest protesters in Lawrence, even if it drew a lawsuit from the ACLU. He just wanted to knock heads, I think. 
He likewise warned picketers that he wouldn't allow them to harm one twig in Johnson County. So he sort of threw down the gauntlet to anybody who wants to express themselves in defiance of whatever Sheriff Hayden thought. He said he would continue an investigation of election fraud in Johnson County because he has, quote, tons of suspicion, despite, admittedly, the lack of hard evidence. He also, by the way, uh, urged election deniers who were employed as poll workers to take pictures of documents that they saw on Election Day that were possibly useful to his probe. I think he had to walk that back a little bit. Um, you know, this all led to a uh, the, the passage by the legislature and placement on ballots in November, a constitutional amendment that would require sheriffs to be elected. And what happened was the elected officials in Johnson County were so uneasy about Hayden being their sheriff that they talked about changing it to an appointive position. So that constitutional amendment was actually passed. And so Hayden's position, as long as he wins elections uh, over there, is, is preserved. And I think he may have toned down some of his rhetoric a little bit, but I think this is very revealing about how uh, this very, very powerful law enforcement officer believes in things that uh, are perhaps ridiculous. This is Sherman. There, there's another critical piece of this amendment, which deals with how you would investigate sheriffs. So if somebody like Calvin Hayden never did go off the rails and do something illegal, this amendment takes away local authority to investigate and, and, and do something about it. It would have to go through the attorney general's office. Yeah, that's a good point, Sherman. And the issue there is that attorney generals in Kansas have historically tried to align themselves with these uh, these sheriffs across the state. And you, every year there's campaigns in which sheriffs endorse this uh, attorney general candidate or the other. So why in the world would the attorney general want to uh, go after three uh, wayward sheriffs and risk losing that powerful voice of, of local government and local law and order in terms of their future elections? You also have one office in charge now of investigating 105 counties, which just doesn't seem very practical. Yeah, and, and this is Clay. I think there's also a, a broader uh, perspective here that's important, which is that there's something known as the constitutional sheriff's movement that's going on across the United States. Uh, it's kind of a fringy theory, but it has more and more people subscribing to it, which believes that county sheriffs are essentially the ultimate law enforcement officials, that their authority supersedes that of other elected officials. And they they're becoming very powerful and talking about things like denying elections and, and whatnot. So that's something to certainly keep keep an eye on. And this is Rachel. I just want to add one more thing about this, which I felt like the campaign for this amendment was a little misleading in some of the posts we were seeing, um, some of the information being spread on Facebook about this. In including some from Sheriff Hayden's office, right? Yes, from his office himself. Um, I forget the exact wording of the post, but in one of the posts he was like, but for this amendment, it will give us, like, it was worded as sort of like um, that the sheriffs were in danger and voting them would, like, keep them. But I felt like it was the language was very misleading, I would say. They had to actually take that post down and, and refine it a little. So, so Rachel, uh, it's it's good to hear from you. And you had uh, you were covering one of our uh, one of the years um, kind of biggest stories, at least to our readers, which was uh, an 
I, I suppose, a threat to the continued existence of the Potawatomi-Wabunsee Regional Library in, in St. Mary's, um, at least as a building in its current site. So uh, tell us about that. Right. So for some context here, the library has been in that location since the 1980s. Um, it serves two counties, eight different locations. So it's it's a very important landmark, I'd say, there for um, readers who want just books in the rural areas. So basically, starting in August, there was some controversy over the library. Um, their lease was up for debate because one parent was mad about a book called Melissa. It's about a transgender middle schooler. And uh, basically, the parent wanted that out of the library. So following debate out of several meetings, the parent and a couple of the commissioners decided that they wanted to include a lease in the library's clause. For renewal, um, the lease would have banned all socially divisive material, all um, racially or sexually or any LGBTQ material at all from the library. So this would have been like a very, very general overview kind of thing here. So the library refused to um, put that into their lease, and ever since then it was up for debate. Finally, um, in December, December 6th, they took a vote on it. After a huge public turnout, a lot of um, reactions from the public, they decided to keep the library's lease where it is today. So this is Sherman. I, th I think the backdrop to this, Rachel, is the the power and influence of uh, a a church in St. Mary's, uh, and the the members of the the county commission, the city commission, excuse me, all members of this church, and their idea was to kind of seize control over the kind of books that this library could have, and if the library refused, which it did, they wanted to pull the lease and you know threaten. Basically, they were threatening to end the library's existence. But ultimately, the library held firm. After you started reporting on it, there was a lot of media attention. The ACLU came in and threatened some litigation. And where does that leave us moving forward? So it's interesting, actually, because um, the commissioners actually were discussing ways to reshape the public library even after this was voted to keep the lease. Um, what I thought was really interesting, too, is in the past, they've discussed having their own city-run library, like completely removing themselves from the county at large. Um, I'm not sure if that's actually possible under the statute they've um, had that library there for a while. But so in the future, I think we're going to be looking at other attempts like this um, to do more censorship, really. They're also looking at, at taking over the, the library board, right? Yeah. Again, um, right now, the library board itself is um, not an elected position at all. So the members are kind of picked and then put on place. But they're hoping to reform the entire board itself um, and maybe get some of their own St. Mary's officials in there. They're claiming that the representation for that is a problem because there's um, a lot more St. Mary's tax dollars going into the library. But I've looked that up. Um, I'm not sure if that's actually true. Uh, it looks like it's representational right now. This is Tim. I interject here. I'm Missouri is going through a controversy in regards to libraries as well. <clears throat> and I must say, I'm just completely baffled by this. The library has always been just a building full of ideas, ideas that you can, you can touch, uh, you can absorb, you can cast them aside, you can choose which ideas to read and follow and, and understand. And for people to come in and say, oh, libraries are being this terrible influence, for crying out loud, why can't people decide for themselves what they want to believe? And, and there's questions about parental control, that like librarians are, are stealing the thunder of parents. Well, no, no. Libraries have uh, books out there that people can pick and choose from, but parents still have uh, 
you know, some sort of influence over what their kids read. It is a parental influence. And if you're concerned about what your kids are reading in a library, go sit next to your kids in the library and make sure they don't pick up that one, those five offend, offensive books that you're all up in arms about. You know, don't you think young kids should be uh, chaperoned in, in, in a library? I mean, if, if you took a six-year-old there, you just don't drop them off and, and leave for five hours and go to a bar and come back, you know? Well, and Clay, we've we've published a series of columns that you kind of curated for this week. And, and over and over again, what we see are people who say, I wish I had this book when I was a kid. This would have been very helpful to me. So it, it's fine for one parent to say, I don't want my kid to read this. But for another kid, this could be a lifesaver. Well, and I think there's there's an important point. This is, is Clay again to to make here, which is that so often what we've seen before this this St. Mary's situation has been challenges to books in school libraries, which have a particular um, you know particular resonance because you know the kids go to school every day. That's the place they have to be. Those those books are the ones that kind of have the this school's backing. I mean, that's a ridiculous thought, but that's how people talk about it. But what we're seeing here at St. Mary's is a, is a challenge to a book in a community library, something that's used by everyone, not just uh, folks who are going to school. And that's a, that's a, a building and, a, and an institution with a, a wider purpose. Can I just well. say one more thing? Sure. This is Tim. You know, in the education system, people, uh, it's a requirement that kids are educated in Kansas. But there's a choice as to where to go. You can go to a public school, you can go to a private school, or you can be homeschooled, all right? So why can't we approach libraries in a comparable way, another publicly funded uh, system? If people don't, if parents don't like the books that are in a library, then home library them, you know? Get the books yourself, and don't let the kid go to the library, we'll say. So there's all kinds of alternatives to ripping books out of libraries and throwing them on the burn pile. Yeah, just this is Rachel again. Just to add on to Tim's point there, um, there are a lot of parental controls already in place, both in the St. Mary's Public Library and libraries in general. Um, In most libraries, there's like forms you can do to say, hey, I don't want my kid to check out this book or that book in particular. Um, That's definitely in place at the public library in St. Mary's, and I believe it's a general practice, too. So, I mean, if you as a parent just go in and say, I don't want my kid reading that, most of the time I think it's uh, librarians won't let them read that. Okay. So, uh, moving on here to kind of, I'm going to say it's a lightning round, but I'm sure it it won't be. But this, these are, these are stories that, um, uh, Sherman and Tim and Rachel have kind of picked themselves from what they've covered so far this year as being particularly important or noteworthy. And Sherman, um, you wrote about something that has been a gigantic issue for years at the Kansas State House: uh, transparency. Yeah, I think what I tried to document was the way the legislature shields itself from public scrutiny through secrecy and playing the shell game with with bills and silencing opposition. And a lot of these tactics are things that are not a surprise to anybody who spends much time in the state house. I think we kind of get jaded by this process. But I think it's it, it's still shocking to the general public and it should be shocking the way that that the legislature operates. You know, we'll have a a bill that is intentionally held from from being 
entered into the system until right before a hearing so that people can't read it and show up informed for that hearing. Only one side that supports the bill has gotten advance notice of it and they're all lined up. The other side is either doesn't know that it's coming, doesn't know the hearing is coming, or is just flat out not allowed to speak before the hearing uh, or during the hearing. Then you have you know, undisclosed authors of these bills, interests that are really behind them. You have an end-of-session avalanche where all these things that may be talked about during the early weeks or months of the session uh, wind up passing all at once in the final 48 hours or so. And they get bundled together with, you know, they'll take this bill and shove it into some other bill with four others. It might be legislation that nobody's ever heard of before that didn't receive a hearing, something that one side, either the Senate or the House has heard, but not the other. But these all get shoved together. We had a tax bill with, I think, 27 different pieces of legislation, some that nobody even knew existed before, all shoved together at once. And when you have a lot of bills like this coming through at the end of the session, you know, there's not even time for legislators to really vet any of these. And that's the way that, that things happen in the legislature now. This kind of idea that like the schoolhouse rock of how a, a bill is formed, how a bill becomes a law, that does not happen in Kansas. Well, and and this is Clay. I I think what's really important for folks to understand about this is that there's no need or requirement that it be this way. Republicans in the in the House and Senate in Kansas have a supermajority. They could literally adhere to every letter of, you know, procedure and every formality and get exactly the same outcomes given their numbers. Uh, it's just that these shortcuts are used essentially to, as you say, just keep the public out. It's it's used specifically to exclude folks from having a voice, not because it would actually it's actually needed to pass these measures. Well, the cynic in me says that if, if people were paying closer attention and the public were more involved, we would see a lot different membership in the legislature. Instead, what we see is more than half of the seats were not even challenged on the November ballot. Mm-hmm. Um. So, Tim, you um, also wanted to talk a little bit about some of the very uh, top-line election results uh, last month in November. I think you can clump together the Laura Kelly defeat of Derek Schmidt, the victory by Sharice Davids against Republican Amanda Adkins, and Chris Kobach's narrow win over Democrat Chris Mann. You know, what I the reason I want to clump those together is I think early on there was a sense— that Laura Kelly could lose, that Sharice Davids could lose, and, and along with Chris Kobach in the attorney general's race. And, and they defied those early odds and won. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think Laura Kelly proved that she was a capable administrator and she talked about economic development and said, I'm a centrist, did a bunch of ads in which she's standing in the middle of a highway. And Derek Schmidt stayed on the conservative flank of the Republican Party. <clears throat> he also had the problem of, of State Senator Dennis Pyle running as an independent. Sharice Davids, <clears throat> excuse me, was specifically targeted by the Kansas legislature, which they redrew all the maps to try to help Amanda Atkins. And Amanda Atkins did worse than she did against Sharice Davids two years ago. Chris Kobach 
who has lost a series of elections in Kansas, uh, people didn't give him much credit. The Kansas chamber insisted that people vote against Chris Kobach because he was unelectable. And they put forward their own candidate, uh, somebody else, and Chris Kobach prevailed in the primary. And then, by the skin of his teeth, he beat Chris Mann, a Lawrence a political novice, in the election. So we have Laura Kelly for another four years, Reese Davids for another two years, both Democrats, and Chris Kobach. He's going to be attorney general for the next four years. And I think all of those uh, races were interesting, perhaps predictable, but I think early on there was some skepticism about them all. Well, and, and Tim, you also mentioned uh, redistricting, which could easily have been an, an entry on this uh, end of year uh, s- summary as well, just the way in which, and it also ties into what Sherman is talking about, the way in which these maps were rolled out. I don't think we, we still don't quite know who drew them or where they came from. Um, and, you know, there were lawsuits there went to the state Supreme Court just challenging how um, how these new districts were drawn and who the U.S. Um, representatives from Kansas would be. There's also a kind of a Hail Mary here that was filed recently to try to get the U.S. Supreme Court to look at those. Hmm. You know, redistricting of these uh, Kansas legislature House and Senate and the U.S. House districts and and subsequently the State Board of Ed. It's a messy process every 10 years. A a decade ago, uh, the the legislative maps were drawn by a panel of federal judges, and they avoided that this time. But one of the points that became very clear to me is that under the Kansas Constitution, gerrymandering is legal. So you can distort uh, political representation uh, to the extent that you disenfranchise people. Here's the best example. Lawrence known as a liberal uh, enclave, was thrown into a congressional district with a bunch of rural uh, conservative voters. And really to silence the uh, electoral voice of Lawrence residents, which I think is sort of outrageous for the people who live in Lawrence. You know, so uh, maybe, you know, maybe that's just the the trend in the nation. And if you have the power, then you flex your muscle. But I don't think it's uh, really the best thing for democracy. I think a lot of attention has been given to to the congressional maps and not so much to the legislative ones. And I think here in a couple of years, we're going to see some really shocking districts in the the Senate maps that were drawn. You take a community like Topeka and Shawnee County, which maybe slightly leans Democratic, and it's carved up like a wagon wheel with districts running off in spokes to rural areas so that they can ensure that only Republicans represent the area. Yeah, and just one quick point on that is the Kansas House was up for re-election this uh, 2022, the Senate not up until 2024. So that'll be the first exploration of the new Kansas Senate maps in two years. Okay, and so now we come again to Rachel. And Rachel, you were talking about some challenges that were faced by Kansas voters this time around. Right, yeah. So it's kind of interesting we're talking about gerrymandering because it's kind of, this ties in a little bit with that. So one of my favorite stories from this year, just from the few months I've been here, has been one about disability voting. Um, it turns out that some of the 2021 legislation made it a lot more difficult for some disabled voters to get out and actually vote. I'm talking specifically about House Bill um, 2183 and House Bill 2332. Um, and these bills, it made it like illegal for people 
possible not to um, for one person to deliver more than 10 election ballots per household. Um, you had to get a signature and make sure it was verified. So that alone put kind of a damper on the voting process for a lot of people living in residential settings with a bunch of other people. And there was also um, more about like which residential addresses can be registered for actual voting purposes. So these two things together made it really difficult for disabled voters to get out there and actually vote. Um, and then also just in general with campaigning and everything, I think we were seeing like a kind of a different world really than we've seen before um, with door knocking campaigns and everything. Um, I've heard a lot more about intimidation, like voter intimidation, a candidate intimidation and the sort of campaigning leading up to the election itself. Right. You, you wrote about candidates who'd had you know, graffiti on, on their personal property, um, threats. They had filed police reports over this. Exactly, yeah. And then in some neighborhoods, too, um, one of, two or three of the candidates I was talking to said they either got stalked when they were going door to door, knocking, you know, just like getting their message out there. So that in itself is kind of worrying that people in Kansas would go out and shout at you if you're trying to like get your campaign message out. This 2021 legislation that you were talking about is, is a, a result of kind of the hysteria around make-believe voter fraud from the 2020 presidential election. And it was this, this provision that you're talking about dealt with a, a term called ballot harvesting, which is just kind of a scary sounding term that doesn't really mean anything. But there were Democrats in the legislature who were kind of notorious for going through their communities and saying, even door to door, you know, have you turned in your mail-in ballot? I will do that for you just to try to make sure that those votes were counted. There's never been any indication of fraud associated with that. Um, nobody has ever been charged with fraud associated with that. But it was a convenient way to say, oh, this is vulnerable to fraud. This is vulnerable to fraud. Let's make sure we stamp it out. Yeah, and we're still seeing that, like, two years later, we still have all these discussions about election security and everything. Um, Tim and I were actually at the House of Reps um, for their speeches, and one of the points we were hearing about was that they're going to work on election security again this year. Which is, uh, and this is Clay, which is, uh, again, kind of mind-blowing, given that all of these Republican supermajorities in the House and Senate are willingly taking their seats. No one is doubting that the voters elected them um, to their positions. So but invariably, you know, there are ways that you could improve security of Kansas elections through better training, better resources, um, higher end machines, uh, things like that. But invariably, these laws always take the effect of making it more difficult to vote. Should point out to conclude on this item that Secretary of State Scott Schwab, a Republican, repeatedly, relentlessly says Kansas elections are free and fair and accurate. And there are still people in his party that don't want to believe that, but I think uh, he's our election czar, and that's what he says. Okay. Well, Sherman, Tim, Rachel, thank you so much for coming together for this uh, year end or your beginning podcast as it may be and i wanted would like to say to you all that the the greatest gift of my 2022 has been being able to work with all of you so thank you